Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we're looking at the beginnings of a political cartel. On the 26th of August, a bill was passed that had fairly large ramifications for the 40-odd minor parties that don't currently have a representative in the federal parliament. The Party Registration Integrity Bill, or as Twitter has named it, the Party Pooper Bill, will triple the minimum membership numbers required for minor parties to either maintain their federal registration or for new parties to become registered. And while much of the focus at the moment is quite rightly centred on the immediate threat to all the minor parties who've been getting ready to contest the upcoming federal election, There's more at stake here than just the number of parties running in that election or whether the Senate ballot paper is the size of a tablecloth or just a placemat. Former Australian Democrat Senator and current National President Lynn Allison and National Vice President Steve Beatty join me to discuss the party pooper bill and what it means for politics in Australia. I'm recording this on Wadjuk country, and Lynn and Steve join me from Orangeri and Gadigal country, respectively. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of those lands and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Earlier this week, the Parliamentary Registration Integrity Bill was passed with great haste uh, through the parliament. Steve, tell me what this bill is like. Why why are we why are we here talking about it today? Uh, Elena, the the bill covers a number of changes to party registration. I think there are two key issues that will be of interest to our listeners. The first covers the naming of political parties, and the aim of that is to try and remove a lot of the confusion that people report when they go, particularly around the uh, the Senate ballot, where a lot of the names can be quite similar and it can create some confusion. So depending on the, the particular example that we think about, whether it's the, the Liberal Party or the Liberal Democrat, we, we end up with this situation where people sort of start to get confused. And now we've got you know someone like the New Liberals, which is only going to add to that confusion. So the first part of the bill looks at how do we put in place some naming conventions and some guidelines to try and remove some of that confusion over time? The second part of the bill deals with the membership limit for federal registration as a political party. That limit is currently 500 members, which need to be proven to the AEC through roles. It needs to match the electoral roles. There's quite a bit of administration that goes into that audit process uh, to be registered with the Electoral Commission. That number is now being tripled. So we're going from an arbitrary number of 500 to an increasingly arbitrary number of 1,500 as the threshold for a party to be registered for the federal elections with the AEC. And it's a massive change. Now, Lynn, you are, as a former senator and a former parliamentary leader for the Australian Democrats, what what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's reasonable that the government has, has pulled this potentially nine months before an election? And is it democratic? Great question. Yes, thank you. Yes, most definitely. Um, And not only that, but this was passed through the two Houses of Parliament in a day and a half. There was no Senate inquiry into the bill and its implications. There was no opportunity for any 
let alone small party, any individual or any organisation to make a submission to this. And this is highly unusual. We know the reason for it, and that is the government wanted to do it very quickly. And that means that uh, we need, I think, to look at why. <laughs> and one good reason just might be that the two major parties are very happy having the power to benefit themselves when it comes to electoral matters, and they do that. Uh, routinely. But uh, I think they also perceive there to be a real threat at the next election coming up of being of losing votes to small parties. And I would include us in that. So, you know, around 70 to 80 percent of the population thinks that, that both major parties have an appalling track record on climate change and they want action and it's not coming. I think we're seeing here a grab for power that is unprecedented. I think it means that the major parties expect that for the foreseeable future, they are the only players in the parliament. Now, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's good for the country. And it's certainly not going to make them accountable. If it was a genuine effort to sort of say reduce the tablecloth sized Senate ballot paper in elections, you would think that they, you know, they would set this up to take take effect after the next election, because we are shockingly close to an election. I mean, we're now coming up on September and the government is within its rights to call an election any time between now and May next year. And so it does seem to be both unseemly haste and coming into effect very close to the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak, in electoral terms. And this was a proper administrative, we're just tidying stuff up and making things sort of more fair and more... I guess, accountable within our, the way our parliament works, you'd think this would take effect post-election. The fact that it's lined up to take effect prior to the election is, to me, as a amateur political uh, analyst, really sus. Yes, highly suspicious, I would say. <laughs> if I were to throw my cynical hat on for just a moment, Alana, and, and you know I'm, I'm not often cynical about these things, the bill <laughs> takes effect in late November. I think there's a three-month period, so... From the 26th of August, we've got September, October, November 26th. If an election were called just after that, all parties, all minor parties that don't have a parliamentary representative would have to have passed an order showing 1,500 members. I find that timing suspicious given the GDP figures for the September quarter are due out on December 1st, and they are going to show a 7 or an 8% decline for the quarter. And I think holding an election quickly before that news seeps out and shows just how badly we're doing with the current COVID handling or the handling of the pandemic feels suspicious. It, it tickles my cynical bones. Can I suggest that this is actually just one more impediment to other parties entering the political scene. So for years, the major parties in particular have been shoring up their power by giving themselves enormous benefits of incumbency. So when you're in the parliament, you have staff, you have officers, you have uh, all of those things that allow you to function, and that's fair enough. But on top of that, levies, for instance, that are charged by political parties for people who are in parliament in that party uh, go straight to the political party and they're tax-free. We as a party, if we were to contest the election and not quite get 4%, that means there's no public funding for a small party. Why? Well, 
largely because they only want to benefit the bigger parties. So every step of the way, the two major parties, this whole idea of, oh, well, we can make it simpler for voters, we'll give them fewer people to have on the ballot paper, and some people will value that. But what does this do to democracy to consolidate the power of the existing parties. Now, maybe we wouldn't mind if they were doing such a good job, but are they? I don't think so. So you're saying that in order to get any kind of public funding as a political party, we need to secure minimum 4% of first preference votes in an election. That's correct. And that is an arbitrary. Why 1,500 members? Arbitrary. Why was it 500 members? Also arbitrary. We get the message from the major parties. This is about integrity. Well, I can't think of anything further from the truth for that, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) This is not about integrity. It's about anti-competitive behaviour. And if the government and the government parties were corporations, they they wouldn't get away with this because the rule is very clear that you you're not allowed <laughs> to artificially reduce the comp- the competitive environment in which you operate. I mean, there's so a word for it. We, we call them cartels. Cartels, exactly cartels. And I think when people realise there's no chance for a fresh voice to come into the parliament in this arrangement, they'll feel a bit differently about what's been going on. This is, this is not about keeping people happy. It's about keeping the major parties in power. Yeah, so this bill is setting us up. So, you know, if they succeed in wiping out the majority of the minor parties who would normally contest the election and close the door on average ordinary people representing their communities in Parliament, then they're simply cementing the cartel of the Liberal and Labor parties. It it looks as though we're taking the first steps down a path that leads us to the kind of representation that occurs in the United States, where there are just two major parties and they're virtually indistinguishable from each other in terms of the policies they enact and the way they run the country. And I think it's a very important question that you've raised is, is that what we want for Australia? Do we want to be a political duopoly cartel? Because, I mean, at the moment, people quite right criticise both major parties for being next to indistinguishable and indistinguishable from each other on matters of climate change, on a whole range of things. And this is when they have open and clear competition from a, a range of voices. Can you imagine what they're going to be like when they have no competition? What we'll end up with is a situation where politics essentially operates like barracking for a sporting team. And it's not much more, in, you know, it's, it's not much more different from that. I'm a supporter of this team versus this other team. And it really doesn't matter what they do. I'm not really paying attention to their performance. I'm simply on one team or the other. And then you have a whole lot of people who are disinterested otherwise. And I don't think that's, again, good for our democracy. It certainly doesn't, won't pay off in terms of a more vibrant political arena or more nuanced policy discussions in the public arena. Like All of that will go. One of the recommendations that came out of this, so um, just in case people aren't aware, the parliament does actually have an electoral committee that is staffed by both major parties. I think the Greens and some of the independents get a look in, but it is obviously dominated by the major parties. And after each election, they basically do an assessment of that election, see how things went and come up with recommendations on how to make running elections and make running parliament, um, you know, quicker, easier, more efficient or whatever. One of the recommendations that came out of the last review, apart from the stuff that's gone into this bill, was a recommendation to make our compulsory voting system optional 
optional. And, and that hasn't yet come across into legislation or anything like that. But Steve, you're right. If we get to a stage where we have two tribes and we're just barracking for whichever tribe we feel represents us, and there's a massive glut of people in the centre who are switched off because they don't feel represented. If you take away the compulsory nature of our voting system, then it's a fait complete that we end up like America. And it's not just in terms of two indistinguishable major parties dominating the political scene. It is the weaponization of funding to get the vote out and to convince people to actually turn up on ballot day. You know, we've already seen the encroachment of massive amounts of money into our, our electoral system via Clive Palmer. And we really will go down the path of billions of dollars being spent urging people to come out and vote as they do in America. And it just really does seem to be the first steps down a quite brutal attack on our democracy. And again, look, I'm a member of a political party. I'm highly politically engaged. I'm a huge fan of democracy. But the average person who's probably not not quite as much of a nerd as me and only cares about things when polling day turns up, I think will you know, have quite a shock over the next couple of years as they watch our democracy basically fall apart in front of their eyes. Indeed. And of course, the UK has the same system and political parties have to spend inordinate amounts of time and money ferrying people from two polling booths and trying to persuade them to uh, to turn up and vote. So uh, I, I think, you know, we have we have one of the best systems in the world in that sense of compulsory mm. voting and we definitely don't need to lose it. I, I, th- I think we can also look at some other countries that do it better. Even New Zealand has a, a fairer, more representative system. The U- European countries tend to have a lot of different parties and they come together and they collaborate. They form associations and determine in advance uh, what things they're going to support and what they're not. The Dutch parliament is very much like this. And uh, so it seems to me to bring in many more voices, you know, much more competition, if you like, and really a a much more intelligent and serious debate about the future of the country. So we seem very frightened of having extra parties in in the mix. But I think we should assure people that there are plenty of countries that do this and they're well governed and it works. So uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that. And New Zealand, I think, is a really good example. If the government and the opposition were interested in actually making governing more representative and fairer and presenting a more diverse and getting parliament to reflect society, I mean, let's face it, because it doesn't. It's mostly white middle-aged men. So a huge section of society has no representation in parliament. They would be looking to reform the way parliament operates. And I mean, I think New Zealand has the Hare-Clark system of parliament. That encourages representative democracy in terms of having lots of smaller parties who end up forming coalitions and governing in coalition. If, if people think that this is, isn't possible in Australia, the ACT operates like that. And the Labor Party and the Greens have been in coalition in the ACT governing for, I think it's what, eight years now? and by all accounts governing really successfully. I wonder if we can go back to the question of this 1,500 members required. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, it's just a demonstration of support in the community. You should be able to demonstrate that a lot of people support you. But of course, there are some very big problems associated with that assumption. The first of them is that this is three times as many members as we previously had. Now, that means it's no small exercise to attract members, especially when half of the country's in lockdown. So we can't can't get out and meet and talk 
to people in the way that we might have done in the past. There is a mere three months to be able to achieve this. And in that time, as we well know, having been through an audit quite recently, we we well know how much work that involves. We need to check people that they're on the roll, make sure they're not members of other parties, make sure uh, they are proper members of our party. This is a massive exercise and it's, I think, designed to make parties fail. So I think it's going to be extremely hard. We're probably in a better position than most small parties. There are a lot of parties that that form out of a single issue. So there's the elderly citizens party or whatever, those groups, they're entitled to run for parliament. And very often they don't have the organisation to do this kind of work with such a large number now required. That threshold is, as I said, arbitrary. It's also pretty unachievable. You make a good point there, Lynn, as well, in that we've only just gone through this process. We've literally, in the last, what, two months, gone through an audit process with the AEC, passed the requirements as, as they were set, have re-registered successfully as a party, and now those goalposts have been moved on us with a short time frame to get organised under uh, restrictions in two states at least currently, which really does make it difficult to engage with anybody to to drum up those uh, additional members that we might need to go through the administrative process of doing that. There were other ways that this could have been handled. There were definitely other ways that this could have been handled. And I think also the the burden that this places on the Australian Electoral Commission to then audit those parties. not been discussed. No, because I mean, there's a huge question mark over whether the AEC, if it gets, say, 20 or 30 minor parties meeting these requirements, submitting lists of probably be close to 200 members each. So the way the current audit works is that we need to we need to submit a list of 550 people to the AEC. They will then randomly select around 50 of those people and reach out to them and get them to say, yes, I'm a member of the party in order to tick you off. And if three of those people say, no, I'm not, then the audit... Uh, the AEC will come back to the party with a please explain and go, what's going on? And the idea is that you you submit your 550 most optional, optimal members, regardless of any members that you have in the party. So you triple that to 1,500. It means you're probably going to have to submit a list of 1,650 people to have the plus or minus 10% rule. And I'm assuming that the AEC would then have to reach out to around 150 people for each party and verify that they are actually members. That is a huge administrative burden on the AEC. And if they have to do that for even 10 minor parties who manage to meet the criteria, can they get that done before the election is called? And what happens if they can't? I mean, do those parties fail in in revalidating their registration and can't take part in the the election? Or do we sort of slide through to the keeper and go, well, we're currently registered under the current rules? No one's discussed that. No no one in in the government or the opposition who who waved this through with unseemly haste has ticked that off. So again, this, this comes back to this being a brutal attack on our democracy. And I think it's very important for us to note to our listeners that the Liberals, Labor, One Nation, the Greens, Central Alliance, and Jackie Lambie and Rex Patrick each have their own political parties, which is the Jackie Lambie Network. And I, I can't, I have, I gone blank on what Rex Patrick's one was. But they don't have to go through this audit process because they have members of parliament. Doesn't matter how many members they have in their party, they're good. Whereas basically, it, it is an attack on everyone who does not have a uh, representation in in parliament. And incumbency thing again. Yes, thank you. So, so this really is one set of rules for people who are, are in parliament, and there's a totally different set of arbitrary rules with a very tight deadline on them for people outside of parliament. And I think, you know, that is a really important point to make is they have fashioned this in a way 
fake scoot through scot-free and everybody else has to meet these. And again, it should also be noted that minor parties are generally run by volunteers. Nobody in the Australian Democrats, from Lynn as the president down, gets paid for the enormous amount of time that we invest in keeping this party running, engaging with our members and building policies and communicating those policies to the electorate. It's all done out of love and out of belief in the mission. And whereas the incumbent parties They've got paid staff. They have hundreds of people on the payroll who can do all this stuff for them. The, the yawning gulf between incumbency and scrappy little parties wanting to do the best thing by their community and by their nation is huge and only getting bigger. Indeed. Pick uh, up on, so, yeah. on one issue there, Elena, around the resourcing of the Australian Electoral Commission. So we know that currently the way in which they operate around their audits is that they conduct two or three at any given time. They're not running 20 or 30 at any given time. We know that there will need to be 30-odd parties audited over the next three months. That's a massive increase in their workload and that the size of that audit will be three times the size of what they're currently able to handle. So there's a question mark there around whether or not they're they're properly resourced. I'll note also that there was a separate, the, the party registration changes were one part of our legislative changes or the electoral changes that went through this week. One of the other changes that went through under a separate piece of legislation was to shorten the pre-polling period to 12 days. And one of the reasons for that was that it was difficult for the Australian Electoral Commission to staff pre-polling booths for longer periods of time. It also happens to be the case that it's much easier for a small party to staff pre-polling booths that are in a relatively small number of locations than it is to, to staff all of the polling booths on election day. So by shortening that period, you're actually making it again more difficult for a smaller party to have a presence at polling booths as people are polling. We know that a lot of people actually make up their minds when they show up at the poll. And so again, like you're reducing that ability for a, a minor party to compete in the election and to contest that election, in this case, using the cover that the AEC is under-resourced, whilst tripling their workload for that period of time. It didn't. That one didn't add up to me. Uh, and, and, and you're right. And it and it really doesn't add up when to, to, to do that in the middle of a pandemic. When I, I live in WA and we had the WA state election earlier this year. And now WA has generally been very fortunate with COVID. We currently have COVID zero. We have generally been operating almost apart from social distancing and checking with QR codes and being highly vigilant. We've essentially been operating almost as if COVID doesn't exist and, and sort of, you know, pre-COVID times. But but we had a really long pre-poll period for the state election in order to ensure that we weren't gathering in large numbers in small spaces to vote. And the government was very open. It threw a ton of resources at ensuring that a, I think it was about a four, possibly even five week pre-poll period. I have to go check that. That might be a walk of shame. But, um, you know, we, we could run an exceptionally long pre-poll period for the state election to ensure that everybody got to vote and we spread out the risk of large groups of people coming together in small spaces. This could be a super, this election could be a super spreader event. Particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. I mean, it's... Where are we going? Yes. Yeah. 
It's uh, so again, so apart from reducing the pre-polling period under the guise of helping the AEC with resourcing, to yeah, to do that in a in a pandemic period just seems super odd. I wonder if I can pose a question to people about the effect of this bill, a slightly different angle on it, but I wonder if this move will persuade people that we'll see less corruption, that we'll see fewer rorts, that we'll see fewer jobs for the boys, that we'll see any more action on climate change, that we'll see a better behaviour on the part of the government when it comes to making deals, making arrangements through various out-of-the-parliament committees. Is this really going to improve the behaviour of our major parties? I somehow doubt it. There is not a chance. That is <laughs> not the way that works. I mean, really, when you, when you shore up your own incumbency and you pull up the ladder behind you so that it's harder and harder for anybody else to get in there and have any kind of voice, have any kind of say, what you're looking for is not greater accountability. You are not looking for greater transparency. You are not looking for more nuanced public debate. You are looking for more money to keep yourself in a job and to keep yourselves in power. What we're going to see is the equivalent of power sharing arrangements more than we're going to see nuanced policy debate. And I know you're asking a very rhetorical question, Lynn. We're going to see the exact opposite of it. We're going to get into a situation where you have, like in the supermarket industry, where we have an effective duopoly between Coles and Woolworths, you will see less competition and that competition really only around the very minor fringe. But by and large, you will have, you know, uh, the Labor Party on the one hand, the coalition on the other, and and not much in the way of differentiation on policy. We saw it this week with the Beetaloo Basin, so $50 million grant to Empire Energy to go and start uh, exploring opportunities to frack in the Beetaloo Basin. That's not a position that's aligned with uh, action on climate change. It's not a position that's aligned with the IPCC report. It's not a position that's aligned with the IEA like the International Energy Agency, it's not aligned with the majority of the Australian people. And yet the coalition and the Labor Party waved through $50 million to give us more gas in an otherwise pristine part of the country. And we're going to see more of that. At the same time, we will see more vested interest, in my view. So there'll be more people, because remembering that the two major parties are basically at war with one another, not over issues, but over who governs the country. And what they need to do is fill their war chests with plenty of money from donors in order to out-advertise or outbid the opposition, whoever it is. So that's what we're going to see more of. We won't see any reform in legislation around putting caps on expenditure or donations. That'll go completely out the window now. That's the only competition in town, basically. So I think this is this. people don't realise the extent of the damage this will do and how it entrenches the current behaviour. We've already seen ministers shrug when they're caught out giving grants, whether it's for car parks or for, you know, (laughs) anything really. Shrug when someone says, well, actually, you're just benefiting your mob. And what about need? What about giving grants to organisations, not on the strength of what electorate they're in, but on their level of need for a particular service or or thing? So, you know, we're not not going to see any improvement, I think, in terms of the behaviour, the accountability of the two major parties. It kind of doesn't matter which one is in. Is uh, they're they're both guilty of the same of the same kind of 
rotting as one another. And one, one thing that I think is going to get overlooked here is this year in particular, we've seen a rise, almost an, an awakening of 51% of the population who suddenly realised that for decades, if not centuries, they've been accepting the crumbs from the table in, in politics. And, and this is women. 100,000 people marched across the country during a pandemic in March to protest about the way women are treated, not just in politics, but in society as a whole. And we know that the Liberal Party, they have, it's, and again, it's not so much a women problem, they have a man problem in which they have terrible representation of women, their policies are not represented of women. The Labor Party, for all that they have spent the last 30 years gaining equality in their parliamentary representation, which they've, they've only just gotten there, it's not reflected in their policies. For all that Julia Gillard has been rightly lauded for her misogyny speech, I think back in 2013, that same day, her government passed legislation forcing single mothers onto what was then the New Start allowance when they're their youngest child turns eight. And the contrast of those two positions is extraordinary because on the one hand, she rightly struck a blow against the misogyny of Tony Abbott about the, the way women are spoken about in Parliament and yet dealt a brutal blow to the interests of single women in the next generation. And I've been speaking to a community group, mostly of women and their male allies around what they want to see in, in terms of, of being represented in politics. And they were very honest and said, we do not feel represented by any political party in the country. No political party in the country is talking to women, either through their policies, through their messaging or you know their positions on things. And that is something that's only going to get worse. I mean, women in this election have the power to decide the direction of our government because they are 51% of the population and they have the ability to vote. And I feel like this change is also kind of directed in shutting down that nascent activism from an entire gender because neither of the two major parties have any demonstrated interest in actually representing women as a cohort. Mm. And, of course, Labor, for all its suggestion that it's for the people and it's, you know, about fairness and about improving the situation for people on low incomes, agreed to the, the tax changes which gave enormous benefits to people on high income. Mm. Oh, they waved it through, just as they waved through this bill. Yeah, Catherine Murphy from The Guardian uh, has sort of referred to Labor's uh, strategy on, on a lot of stuff as the bitch and fold. They will step up and say how terrible whatever it is that the government has proposed. You know, when it comes time to actually make a difference and oppose something, they just wave it through. And this goes to tax cuts to high income earners, which radically changes the shape of our, of our progressive tax system and makes it much less progressive and much more weighted in favour of people who earn more than $200,000 a year through to national security, through to cyber security, to digital security, through to the way we treat asylum seekers through, I mean, I could go on for some time. And Jackie Lambie in Parliament, when she was taking part in a very short one hour long debate on this bill, turned to the opposition and said, what is the point of you? You don't oppose anything. I'm yeah. paraphrasing, but you know. But pretty close. Mm -hmm. And and it's a, it's a pretty fair comment. The, the idea that I understand the strategy of picking your battle, but at some point you've got to pick one. And and that's just not what Labor has done for years. They seem well, to the, refuse. The battle very often is within the party. That's their problem. So well, that's, <laughs> so yeah. and that's been clear change. this week. Look at Labor's equivocation over 
everything from fracking and gas and coal, <laughs> new coal fields and so forth, uh, um, it's that's driven by a very small cohort within Labor that doesn't want to let go and hasn't got the ideas around how to provide jobs for the people who are currently in, for instance, the coal mining industry. Yes. So we, we've got we've got a lack of ideas. We've got uh, we're stuck in old ways. Labor wants to be a small target. That's they're keeping their head down lest they be criticised for anything at all. Not prepared to stand up and argue the case. That's one of our problems, I think, is that we don't have articulate members of parliament who can actually explain and persuade. Labor certainly isn't capable of that. Lynn, you were, you know, you represented the Australian Democrats, I think, from the mid-90s through to, you were possibly our last parliamentary representative and turned the lights off in the party room when you walked out the door. (laughs) How different is the political discourse now from when the Australian Democrats held the balance of power in the late 90s and 2000s, you know, to now where we don't seem to have an effective opposition, much less a crossbench holding either party to account. Has, has there been a huge change in the way politics operates in Australia since you represented us? I think that's likely. Not being there, it can be difficult to make an assessment about that. However, we always saw our role as being there as uh, not intermediaries so much as, as the party that could modify, improve legislation in particular. Of course, we couldn't do that if the two major parties were in agreement. But in my time in the parliament, that was that was often the case for sure. But there were plenty of opportunities for us to work with the government of the day or indeed the opposition of the day to have amendments, successful amendments that would improve either accountability or better action on climate change. We did many of those things. But I think at the present time, that's not happening. We're not seeing any negotiation. We're not seeing any collaboration in the parliaments other than, of course, the two major parties simply agreeing. And I don't think that Labor tries very hard to improve legislation. That's not their role. What they want to do is try and get ahead of the other party. Uh, there's this argument in, in, in those quarters around we don't want to make them look good. So why would we why would we put up amendments that improve the bill? So they want they want to be able to say they want to be able to criticise it. So that doesn't happen. And I think this is a great pity. Um, I don't see that party or government on the crossbench or in opposition at all. You know, that idea, and by that I mean the idea that as a party, you are looking to improve legislation at every opportunity rather than simply oppose whatever legislation is, is being put forward, if you even do that. I think what we see from the Greens is effectively activism in Parliament rather than governance or government. And so their position is often in opposition to rather than here's a piece of legislation. It has these areas that call for improvement or that warrant change. Here's the evidence for that change. And we'll work with the government to make those uh, amendments. We just don't see that. And and I don't believe we have since uh, seen it since the Democrats have that I think that's right. We have a bit more action from independence. And, but of course, uh, it can be very difficult to get the numbers just with, <laughs> with independence being independent. So you you are yes. not negotiating with with a spokesperson or a portfolio holder. You're having to do all of the negotiations with everybody in order to get across the line. So that makes it much more difficult. Although, as I say, I think there some of our independents perform well in the parliament. I yes. doubt they can get across all of the legislation that goes through. It seems humanly impossible. 
to do that. It was uh, it was busy enough when we had nine senators and our portfolios were very full indeed. So uh, mm. I, I think you need at least at least a handful of people to make a difference. I think also one very important point is, and this is probably aimed more at younger voters who are sort of coming of age in in this era of more divisive and tribal politics rather than the more collaborative negotiating politics that you're a part of, Lynn. A diverse crossbench can have a real and material and beneficial effect on the way this country is governed. And if the government and the opposition succeed in essentially eliminating the crossbench, as as this legislation seems intent on doing, we're going to lose even that. Indeed. So we were always seen by both the major parties as people you could negotiate with, people you could trust, people you could work with. So for instance, if, if I wanted to set up a Senate inquiry, I, I chaired the Environment Committee and so we did lots of inquiries, loads of inquiries. Many of them were initiated by me, but others were initiated as well. We did that collaboratively. I would talk with them in advance, say, I think we should inquire into this, you know, what's on your priority list for doing that and so on, and we would agree. That way, we, we had inquiries that were necessary, were timely. We also had people on the committee who were prepared to listen and were able to agree on recommendations. So, you know, you have your inquiry, that's one thing, but then when it comes to writing the report, what what you most want is a, a report that where everyone agrees on the recommendations. That's basically the only way the public service will take notice. The government will take notice and say, well, we better do something about this. I think there's a, an important point there about working in good faith, operating in good faith. And I think the second thing about the Australian Democrats is the idea that someone can make a case. So put forward your case, provide your evidence, provide your your recommendations, back them up with a solid rationale and we'll listen. And I'm not sure that that's a widespread position that you find. um, Exactly, Steve. And the the wonderful thing about the Senate is is its inquiry process. Every piece of, other than the one we're talking about today, every piece of legislation with any substance at all is open to an inquiry, which means that any person, any individual, any organisation can make a submission. This is truly the most amazing and the most valuable part of the whole parliament, in my view, because you change your mind. You know, you may go in into a piece of legislation thinking you know what it's about and who it's going to affect and how they'll be affected, but then when you sit down in front of people, they tell you how it's going to affect them or, you know, they tell you about the science or the evidence or the precedents or the, you know, what's happening overseas. You you get a very much bigger picture than does the government. And this is really crucial. So we've, we've gone into inquiries about legislation and not actually known that which way we want to vote, how we want to change it, if at all. So and come out and uh, had a very long list of ways in which it needs to be improved. And with yep. that backing, with the backing of the inquiry and all those people who made sub- submissions to it, the government has much more difficulty in saying, no, we're just doing what we said we'd do. This is the joy. This is the wonderful part of our democracy, I think, that works so well. But it does involve a lot of effort and it does yeah. involve as you say, Steve, that good faith anticipation of reaching a good outcome. It's the part that's at risk from this. It is. This this bill has passed. Like we can't, we're we're talking about it. We can't change the legislation. It has gone through. What we need is 
people to sign up and join minor parties. Join the Australian Democrats. If you're listening to this, we hope that you support the Australian Democrats and join the Australian Democrats. Join someone. Get involved. Get engaged. Join that movement. Give yourself the permission and the space to actually take a position with someone. We would love that to be us. But that's the way to make sure that these attributes of our legislative process are actually retained and we don't get into this, you know, American style parliament where it's it's essentially partisan almost all the time and it's just two teams. And we can make the promise that we will never we will never agree to a bill such as this because of the democratic implications of it. Yes. Uh, so we're always always interested in the question of accountability and yes. and the parliament operating in the way that it should and that's not to fast track uh, controversial legislation which benefits the two major parties essentially. I think this discussion has really highlighted uh, particularly around the process of Senate inquiries and the engagement with the electorate and the engagement with ordinary stakeholders that that process facilitates. What a betrayal the ramming of this legislation through the parliament in a day and a half actually is to everybody in Australia. doesn't matter if you're politically engaged or completely politically disengaged and wouldn't be able to pick out the Prime Minister from a lineup. It really is a betrayal because as citizens we vote for people to represent us in government and they're supposed to represent our interests. They're supposed to represent the community and they're supposed to govern the nation in the best interests of the nation. And apart from the fact that successive governments over the last decade have demonstrably not governed in the best interests of the nation, they're now changing the landscape of our democracy to ensure that they can keep on not governing in the best interests of the nation and are putting in place hurdles to keep ordinary people out of the process. So so most people in this country only get engaged when an election is called and they're being called upon to exercise their democratic right to vote. At that point, it's going to be too late this time round. So people need to get involved now. As Steve said, join a party. doesn't have to be us. We would love it very much if, you, if it was us, obviously. But find a minor party that speaks to your values that you feel represented by. And the simple act of joining them is a huge benefit to that party. We have two tiers of membership. One is a full ordinary member where you pay a small fee and you get to engage with the party and, and vote in things like AGMs and vote for office holders, vote on our policies and that sort of thing. We also have a free tier because we acknowledge that democracy should be open to all. And that's what we call a supporter member where you get all the benefits of membership, except you don't get to vote on, on, on stuff and, and engage in those party processes. But that is also well suited to people who probably don't want to get that heavily involved, but they want to put their hand up and, and say, no, I support democracy and I support the work of the Democrats. And this really is a call to arms to people. As Steve said, legislation's passed. We can't reverse this. There is no set an inquiry to be had to say this is the impact it's going to have on this country. The, the two major parties have stitched that up quite well. But now, as a nation, we need to rally in defence of our democracy and fight to ensure that the minor parties who are more, much more likely to represent the interests of community groups, of the disenfranchised people in the nation who don't have re representation in parliament now. Now is your time to step up and help those people do what they want to do for you, which is represent you. Thank you so much to Lynn and Steve for their time and their insights. In particular, Lynn's recollections on what it means to represent the community in the Senate and why that part of our parliament is so important. Steve wanted me to mention that an important consideration that we missed in our discussion is that without crossbench parties focused on accountability, we're never going to see governments implementing safeguards against corruption.
Neither of the major parties want guards against donors buying legislation in support of their interests, and neither party wants to implement controls around salaries, expenses, or benefits for sitting MPs. I'll put a link to our platform on accountability in the show notes, and we'll do a deep dive into this in a later episode. Back to our discussion. Once the majors have wiped out the crossbench parties in independence and have established a cosy duopoly, then they're free to treat the taxpayer as an ATM for their parties and their donors. I mean, look at what the Morrison government has tried and mostly succeeded in getting away with at the moment. And that's with the clear competition from minor parties and the independence movement. Imagine how brazen they'll be when the option to vote them out and replace them with an independent or a minor party candidate is taken from you. Since recording, we've now been advised by the Australian Electoral Commission that all parties without parliamentary representatives have until the 2nd of December 2021 to become compliant with the new membership requirements. There is no time to lose. If we've persuaded you to join us and support our return to Parliament, there's a link to sign up with the party in the show notes. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>